We come in our study of this eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans this evening to the last phrase in the fourth verse. The last phrase in the fourth verse in the eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now let me read the third verse as well as the whole of the fourth verse again. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, this great statement has been occupying our attention for a number of Friday evenings, and that, of course, very rightly, because in many ways it is a summary of all that the Apostle has been saying in the whole of the previous part of this great epistle. It's a summary, as I've been emphasizing. He's gathering the matter up again after his long digression in chapters 6 and 7. He's doing so in order that he may proceed to a further description and elaboration of the Christian life. Therefore, it is, of course, one of those pregnant statements containing the essentials, the basic essentials of the Christian faith. The point is that God, he tells us, has done something that the law could not do. Even the law could not do it because it was weak through the flesh. And what it has done, of course, is this. It has made it possible for the righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in us. And it has done that, as we've seen, in this way. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin in order that in that way, in his flesh, sin might be judged, condemned, and punished. And that having been done, the way is open for the righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in us. Now then, that is what we've been considering. And of course, it is quite basic to the whole Christian position. If we don't understand that, we are not Christians at all. There we are told how we become Christians. We, this question of the law had to be dealt with. While we are under the law, we are hopeless in every respect. We cannot be forgiven, neither can we live the holy, righteous life. So the problem was to deal with the law, and God has dealt with it once and forever in what he did in and through his only begotten son, who honored the law in his life, who bore the punishment meted out by the law on sin in his death. So, as the result of all this, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. Now, the, the question is, who are we? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, who, who are these people? Well, here is his answer. In us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, here is again one of these uh, key phrases. It's a key phrase in particular from the standpoint of the doctrine of sanctification. And uh, the two most uh, well-known and prominent schools of thought with regard to sanctification differ most essentially at this point in their interpretation of this particular phrase. And therefore we must examine it very carefully. Fortunately for us, we're in a position to do so. Because from verse 5 onwards to the end of verse 13, and especially perhaps to the end of verse 11, the apostle himself tells us what he means by the phrase. These verses that follow, 5 to 11 particularly, because 12 and 13 are an exhortation, are given to an exposition of this phrase. You see, therefore, what a crucial phrase it is. Now then, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What does this mean? Well, let's approach it like this. Let's take, first of all, the description. I'm going to ask the question, who are these people? Well, before we can deal with that, 
let's observe what the apostle says about them, the description. And the first word that engages our attention, therefore, is, of course, this word walk, who walk, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What does this term walk mean? This is, again, this is one of the crucial points, as you'll see. And uh, I suggest to you that what it means is, it's a, a description of our general way of living. I'm emphasizing the general. It is a word that is used in the New Testament to describe the general tenor of a man's life. The way in which we live in general. In other words, it, it uh, tells us something about what it is that uh, governs and regulates a man's life, both in his thought and in his practice. A man walks in this particular way, we are told. Well, that means that he is governed by a certain principle which controls his life. It governs his thought, his judgment, his feelings, the objects that he's interested in, his purposes, his way of living, everything. Now, let me give you some uh, illustrations of how this word is used in the scripture in that uh, general way. Take, for instance, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you will find in chapter 21 and verse 21 this statement. And they are informed of thee, this is about the Apostle Paul, they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children neither to walk after the customs. That was a charge that was brought against the apostle, that he was teaching the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake the teaching of the Old Testament, the moral law and the Levitical law and so on, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs, which means obviously this, that they were not to conform themselves to the customs, that their mood and manner of life and of worship and of everything else was not to be governed and controlled by these customs that were taught in the Mosaic law. Now, there is a typical instance of the use of this word walk. Well, then, you noticed it, didn't you, in the reading at the beginning in the epistle to the Ephesians, particularly in the second chapter. Listen to him there at the beginning of the second chapter. You are the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. Now he's describing there, isn't he, the general tenor of their life. They walked according to the course of this world. They lived according to the course of this world. Would, would convey exactly the same idea. Then he uses another interesting word, in the third verse, he says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. Now, in the authorized version, the word conversation doesn't mean what we normally mean when we talk about having a conversation today. We mean that we're having a talk with somebody. But conversation here means the whole of life, the whole way of living, among whom also we all behaved in that manner in times past, in the lusts of our flesh. Our conversation is our whole way of living. Now, it means virtually the same thing as walk. It, it's a description, it's a, it's a term, you see, which is used to describe the general manner in which one lives. It's not a specific term. It's a very general term. You've got the same idea exactly at the end of the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, where he says in verse 20, Our conversation is in heaven. He doesn't mean our speech is in heaven. He means our polity, our home, our commonwealth is in heaven. That's where we belong to. That's where we really are living. Conversation. Now then, this is the word that we've got here. It is a description, therefore, of the way in which people live in general. So that you will find the most interesting term used 
about Christian people in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. They are called the people of the way. The people of the way. They are people who are walking along a given way. They're walking along the narrow way, no longer on the broad way. That's it. They're walking along it. Now, that's a description of the totality of their life. Not merely their practice, but their thought, their desire, their everything. So, he is saying that uh, the righteousness of the law is to be fulfilled in these who walk. You see, it describes the general tenor of the whole of their life. Who walk not after the flesh. Now, here's our second word, the word flesh. We've met this word already in dealing with this epistle to the Romans, so I have nothing to do but to remind you of what we've said on previous occasions. It's a word that is used in different senses in the New Testament. And that is why some people get confused by it. Now, go back again to that epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, and there you will find that in the third verse, the apostle uses the word flesh twice, but in different ways. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Well, now obviously, the word flesh hasn't the same connotation in those two instances. He first of all uses it in general. All had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, then he subdivides it into two sections, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So the first flesh includes flesh and mind. So clearly, I say, it isn't the same thing. In other words, there are three main uses of this word flesh. The first is this. It is used for mankind in general. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. It is used to describe persons, human beings. That's a common use for it. But then it is also used to mean body. And that's what it means in the second use in Ephesians 2.3, the body. Take the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, by which he means in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. There's the second meaning, but it has a third meaning. And the third meaning is this. It stands for unrenewed human nature. In other words, it stands for sinful human nature. It stands for human nature as the result of the fall. Human nature as it is before the Spirit of God begins to work upon it. Now then, Paul says we were all like that at one time. We were all in the flesh. Then we were quickened by the Spirit. There's your regeneration. Well, now, it seems to me to be perfectly clear that the meaning which it has in our phrase this evening in this fourth verse of the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans is that last one. Here he is describing unrenewed human nature in general who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. In other words, the best way perhaps of describing this use of the word flesh is that it is always used as a contrast with life in the spirit. So it is man's human nature, man's life, apart from, outside the influences and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now then, that is clearly, I say, its meaning here. We are no longer walking after the flesh. We are walking now, he says, after the Spirit. They are the people in whom the righteousness of the law is going to be fulfilled. But now let's be clear about this. When you say, therefore, that these people are walking in the flesh, at least that they were walking in the flesh, it doesn't of necessity mean that they were living a very sinful life. It doesn't of necessity refer to gross immorality 
or gross evil. It may mean that. It may include that. But you can have very respectable people who are never guilty of the gross, what we call sins of the flesh, who nevertheless are walking in the flesh or after the flesh. Now let me prove that contention to you. The apostle has already used it in that sense in the um, seventh chapter, in the fifth verse. Listen. For he says, when we were in the flesh, that's to say all of us, all mankind which is unregenerate, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the Lord did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, there it is, you see. Now, he doesn't mean by that that uh, he and everybody else were drunkards and adulterers and murderers and guilty of all the gross sins of the flesh. It doesn't mean that of necessity at all. But what it does mean is this, that we were in a state and a condition in which the Holy Spirit was not leading us and guiding us. That's what it means. We were walking after the flesh. So that you see this evening, you can have the most gross and obvious sinner in London, and you can have the most respectable moral man in London, and you can say about both of them that they're walking after the flesh. Neither of them is a Christian. The Holy Spirit is not influencing either. One is in rags, the other is very decently clad, but they're both walking after the flesh. Now, this is a most important distinction, of course. Let me give you a further instance of exactly the same thing so that we may establish this. You've got it in the epistle to the Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, here he puts it like this. Are oh, you so foolish, he says. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? What's he mean by that? Well, flesh doesn't mean there that you fall into this gross kind of sin because even the foolish Galatians never imagined at the height of their folly that any man could improve his Christian standing and his Christian life by plunging into sin. No, no. What they were doing was to go back to circumcision. They were going back and putting themselves back under the law so that when Paul says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? He means having started in the spirit. Are you trying to perfect your Christian life by going back under the law and back to circumcision? That's what he means by the flesh. Not gross, obvious sins, but this outlook upon themselves and their relationship to God. But let me give you a still clearer one. In the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 3 again. Philippians 3, 3. Listen to this. We, he says, are the circumcision... Let me read the, from the beginning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision. Who are we? Well, those who worship God in the spirit, not with the old ceremonial, but in the spirit. And uh, rejoice, not in our own works, but in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What does flesh mean there? Well, it's this same thing again, you see. It's the general tenor of life. He's not thinking of gross sins in the flesh, because he goes on to say, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Why? Because I've been a great drunkard or a doctor? Not at all. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, etc., etc. Now, surely, that ought to be enough to establish this once and forever. So that when he says that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, he's not saying is fulfilled in us uh, who no longer are guilty of terrible sins that we once committed. That's not what he's saying at all. To walk after the flesh means that you view yourself and your relationship to God in a manner that is entirely opposed to God's way of salvation in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That you're like the Jew who thinks he's right with God because he's a Jew. 
because he's been circumcised, because he was a moral man, because he was studying the law, and because he wasn't doing certain things. In other words, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were all men who walked after the flesh. They were not walking after the spirit. They were walking after the flesh. That's why they disliked our Lord, and that is why they finally crucified him. He convinced and convicted them of walking after the flesh, and they wouldn't listen to his spiritual message. So that we must be quite clear about this. This phrase we're looking at is not primarily descriptive of evil acts or sinful actions. It is descriptive of a whole outlook upon salvation that is the opposite and antithesis of that which is taught in the New Testament gospel. It is viewing salvation from the carnal fleshly, human, earthly standpoint. It is not the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In other words, it is the typical outlook and attitude of the unregenerate man, whether he is your good moral man or whether he is your most profligate and vile and filthy and foul sinner. They're both in the same category. They're both walking after the flesh. They do not understand the need of the work of the Spirit and of regeneration and the continuing operation of the Spirit in them. That is what he means by walking after the flesh. Don't think of it in terms of conduct and behavior primarily or of particular actions. It includes the outlook and it is particularly the outlook as Galatians 3.3 and Philippians 3.3 prove which are so parallel to what we are looking at this evening. Very well. There is the meaning of the term flesh. Then he contrasts that, you see, with the spirit, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What does this mean? Well, this is, of course, the Holy Spirit. What he's already been telling us in verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We saw it there. He's just saying it again. That's what I'm talking about, he says. I am talking about these people who are now in the realm of the Spirit. They've been enlightened by the Spirit, quickened by the Spirit, and they've been regenerated by the operation of the Spirit, and their life, their walk is one in which they're being led and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, of course, as I pointed out to you at the beginning of the chapter, He'd said this actually in the sixth verse of chapter 7. Listen to it again. But now we are delivered from the law, being dead to that wherein we were held, that in order that we should serve in newness of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. You see, he had combined the law and the flesh in chapter 7, as he always does. And here he is now combining the spirit and life. We are to walk, he says, in newness of spirit. We should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So the righteousness of the law is to be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh and do not, do not attempt to serve God in the oldness of the letter but in the newness of the Spirit. Indeed, we are the people who have been set free by the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ, and we are led by the Spirit. Now then, there is the description. There are the terms. Now comes the crucial question. Who are these? Who is he describing? The righteousness of the law is to be fulfilled in people of whom that is true. They no longer walk after the flesh, but they walk after the Spirit. Who are they? Now, there are two main ideas, as I've said, about this. The one school, which is very popular and well-known, is one that says that this only applies to certain Christian people. They divide Christians into two main sections. The one they call the carnal Christian, and then secondly there is the spiritual Christian. There is the Christian, they say, who's been saved all right, but he's still walking after the flesh. But it is possible for him to have another experience. 
which will then bring him into the position that he walks no longer after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now they say the Christian who is walking after the flesh is the man who is described in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. But you can go out of chapter 7 into chapter 8. You can have another second experience, a new blessing. And you pass from chapter 7 into chapter 8. And you are no longer a Christian who is walking after the flesh. You now become a Christian who is walking after the Spirit. So that to walk after the Spirit, according to this view, is something that is optional. You can be a Christian who doesn't opt to walk like this, or you can, if you like, choose it. Once you've heard about it and you like it, you say, I want that. And so you surrender and you receive it, and you become a Christian that is now walking after the Spirit. It depends upon whether you elect or choose to do so or not. Now that is one common teaching. What about that teaching? Well, I want to suggest to you that that interpretation is directly contradictory of what the Apostle is saying in the first four verses of the eighth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Who is he talking about here? He is talking about the people of whom it is true to say that there is no longer any condemnation for them. That's who he's talking about. He's told us that these are the people in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Who are they? They are the people whom the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made free from the law of sin and death. Who are they? Well, they are the people for whom God sent his Son into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering in order that their sin might be condemned in the flesh in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in them. They're the same people the whole time. And surely, these are Christian people, all Christian people. It is true to say of all Christians that there is no condemnation to them. There is no indication whatsoever here that the Apostle recognizes two types of Christians. He's talking the whole time about the same people. He doesn't say, now, there are some Christians who remain there, but it is possible. No, no, he is making a statement about all who are in Christ Jesus. And every Christian is in Christ Jesus. You can't be a Christian, as he's going to show at great length in the following verses, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he says, he is none of his. He is saying what is true of all who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody who is a Christian, who is in Christ is one who is walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There is no indication here of two groups. There is no such indication anywhere. Let me put it positively then. Let me give you reasons for asserting that he is here describing every single Christian, and not merely some Christians who have chosen to go further forward in the Christian life. There is the first reason, the negative one. And also the second one I've just been putting, which is that there is no hint of such a description here at all. Indeed, as I'm pointing out, verses 3 and 4 were written by the apostle to expound the second verse. You remember verse 3, this great statement starts with the word for, because verses 3 and 4 are an explication of verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That's why there is no condemnation for me. I've been taken out of the realm of the law. I am in this realm of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Anybody who is in Christ Jesus is in that position. Very well. But look at it like this. Take, for instance, what our Lord himself said to Nicodemus. And there you will find exactly the very contrast that we've got here in these verses in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Let me read these verses. Nicodemus, verse 4, in John 3. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? See, that's thinking according to the flesh. Here's a man who's walking according to the flesh, Nicodemus, 
and his old thinking is according to the flesh. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then listen, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now there is the contrast, surely, established once and forever. It's the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, between walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit. Nicodemus says, Allah, you're trying to understand this, and you're betraying yourself. You're walking after the flesh. Your whole outlook is a fleshly one. I'm talking about something spiritual. And you've got to be baptized of this spirit before you can see this and enter into this. You can't do it where you are. Your whole outlook is wrong. Everything about you is wrong. You are in the flesh, and you're thinking after the flesh. Everything is after the flesh. You need the Spirit. You've got to be born of water and of the Spirit before you can enter this realm and then you're in a spiritual realm. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The very self-same thing as we've got here. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And it's true of every man who is regenerate. Well, now, if you want a final proof, you get it, of course, in the verses that follow. I've indicated already that from verse 5 to the end of verse 11, the apostle gives us an exposition of this phrase. And we're going on, God willing, to look into that. But there are some verses which are perfectly plain here. He says, they that are after the flesh to mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Exactly what our Lord said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was unregenerate. But here, a man who's after the Spirit and minds the things of the Spirit, he's a regenerate man. So it's true of all regenerate men. It is true of all Christians. To be carnally minded, that's the same thing. That is death. Death, remember. Not just poor Christianity, but death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. That's not true of any Christian. It's impossible. You can't be a Christian and that enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh, those who walk after the flesh, cannot please God. They're under his wrath, in other words. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He's not a Christian at all. Surely that ought to be sufficient. This phrase is not a description of certain Christians only who have chosen to go in for a higher Christian life. It is true of everybody who is a Christian at all. He is describing anybody or everybody who is born again, who is regenerate, who is in Christ. Let me sum it up by putting it like this. By nature, we are all in the flesh and we walk after the flesh. That is the realm of the natural man. But now, as Christians, we are in an entirely different realm. We are in the realm of the Spirit. We belong to it, we've been put into it, and it is the one in which we live and in which we walk. And it is true of every single Christian, however he's living. Now take the way the Apostle put all that in the second chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians. You hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. And what has he done to you? He says he has raised you together with Christ. Quickened you and raised you. Not only that, he went on, you notice, and said, seated together with him in the heavenly places. Who is he talking about? Is he only talking about certain Christians? No, he's talking about every Christian. There are not two groups of Christians in Ephesians 2. There are not two groups of Ephesians in Romans 8 or anywhere else. No, no. This is true of every Christian. Every Christian, however unworthy a life he is living tonight, if he's in Christ, he is seated with him in the heavenly places at this minute. It is not only true of Christians who are supposed to have passed from Romans 7 to Romans 8. There is no such thing here. 
All Christians are in Romans 8. You can't be a Christian without being in Romans 8. And we've already seen the interpretation of Romans 7. You see, this phrase is really a very crucial one. There is no such thing as a Christian who is only justified, who has merely believed on the Lord to forgiveness and to salvation from hell, but who goes on living afterwards in the flesh. There is no such thing described in the New Testament. Regeneration and being in Christ and having the Spirit of Christ in us makes that quite impossible. You can't be just a forgiven Christian. If you're a Christian, you are regenerate. You are in Christ. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. That is true of every Christian. There is no such thing as the merely justified Christian who has not yet taken his sanctification. Christ is made unto us wisdom, even righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Paul is there addressing all Christians in the first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. But perhaps the clearest statement of all of this is to be found in the first epistle of John in chapter 3 and in the well-known verses 8 to 10. Listen. He that committeth sin is of the devil. He belongs to the devil. The devil is his father. He's of the progeny of the devil. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God, here's the contrast, doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. There are your contrasts again. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, there's only one conceivable interpretation of that. What he means is this. He that committeth sin means he that goes on doing it, he who lives in it, he who dwells in it, he who walks in it, he whose general tenor of life is in it. That's what he means. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. He can't be referring to individual acts of sin, because if he were, there wouldn't be a single Christian. There never would have been a Christian. Every Christian falls into sin at some time or another. But he says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. He means he doesn't live in it, he doesn't walk in it, he doesn't spend his life. That's not the general tenor of his life. And you see, in other words, it's precisely the thing that we're looking at in these verses here in the 8th chapter of this epistle to the Romans. The Christian may fall into sin, but that does not mean that he is now walking after the flesh. Certainly not. He is still walking after the Spirit, but he's fallen into sin. He's in the realm of the Spirit. He is still in Christ, though he's fallen into sin. He doesn't cease to be in Christ because of an act of sin. He may fall into sin, but he doesn't abide in it. He doesn't go back into that realm. He doesn't belong to it. He doesn't become a child of the devil again. No, no. He has been taken out of that realm, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The apostle, therefore, I say again, is describing here in general the realm in which all of us who are Christians live. When he does want to talk about the particular way in which we do live in detail in actions as Christians, he uses a word which is also translated by walk in this authorized version, but which in the Greek which Paul used is a different word. Let me show you. Go to Galatians 5.25. Here's an interesting statement. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now then, here you see is a specific injunction as to what we are to do and what we are not to do. He's not describing the general tenor now. He's more particular. And this is the astonishing thing. When he wrote that, he did not use the same word as he uses in Romans 
He used a different word, a more particular word, a word which means walk orderly. He's got a picture in that word of a number of men, a number of soldiers standing in a line. And there's the sergeant major drilling them. They're meant to walk orderly. They're meant to walk all together and in line. That's the word he used. It's an orderly walk. Walk in line or something that you hold on to. Isn't it interesting that when he comes to that aspect, he deliberately chooses and uses a different word. You get it again in Galatians 6, 16. And as many, he says, as walk according to this rule. Now he's talking about detailed actions. And he uses the same word as he uses in Galatians 5.25, which is not the word that he uses in Romans 8.4. And there is one further instance of it in Philippians 3.16. Nevertheless, he says, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Again, the word that he used in Galatians 5.25 and 6.16, not the word which he uses in Romans 8.4. And that seems to me to be the final and the conclusive argument. That here, he has deliberately chosen the general word, which describes nothing beyond the general tenor of the Christian's life. The Christian is one, therefore, for me to sum up. The Christian is one who is in an entirely new realm. He is no longer in the realm of sin and law and death. He is no longer governed by sin and led by sin and the flesh. What is his position? He is now alive unto God. He is in Christ. In the realm and the rule of grace. He is governed, he is led by the Spirit, as the Apostle is going to tell us later on in this same chapter, in verse verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And this is true of every Christian. He is now controlled by a new power, and that power is none other than the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and who works in us. The Holy Spirit is in every Christian. The Holy Spirit works in every Christian. That is why it is true to say of every Christian that he walks after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Very well. Let me ask one question before I let you go. Why did the Apostle add this description, do you think? To the statement that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. I think he'd got three reasons. Here's the first. He puts it in to show us how the righteousness of the law can and will be fulfilled in us. It is the work of the Spirit. Secondly, he was anxious to show the certainty of all this. I suggested when we analyzed the whole chapter that its theme is assurance, certainty, There is therefore now no condemnation, never can be, never will be. If you're in Christ, you will be perfect and entire without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The certainty. No condemnation. It's not enough, in other words, that we realize that we are forgiven and free from the law. Before we can enjoy the benefits of salvation, we need a positive righteousness. We must be holy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. How can I be sure that I'm going to be like that? Here's the answer. The Holy Spirit is going to look after that. Christ had to come. Christ had to bear our sins as a sin offering, had to receive their punishment and condemnation. Why? Not only to deliver us from hell and to justify us and to make us righteous. No, no, but that the Spirit might come and do his work in us and he will bring us to that final glory and perfection. The certainty of it all is introduced this to show how it is certainly going to be done by the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. We've got new life in us, he says. We are not merely forgiven and left where we were. No, no. If you're in Christ, you're not merely forgiven. You're put into Christ. The Spirit comes into you. You're living in the realm of the Spirit. There's this complete change. 
transferred, you're transferred, translated from one kingdom into another kingdom. No longer after the flesh, after the spirit now. The certainty of it all. That's what he's proving. And then my third and last reason is this. This also is a very good test which we must all apply to ourselves. That's why the apostle takes from verse 5 to the end of verse 11 in order to prove what he means here. That's why he adds his exhortation in verses 12 and 13. He wants to make quite certain that nobody is just taking hold of this sort of thing in an intellectual manner and no more. He wants to make sure that there's no such thing as a man who says, Oh, I believe in the Lord, I'm all right. No, you're not, says Paul. You wait a minute. If you really believed in the Lord, well, there are certain proofs. If you really believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the realm of the Spirit. You're walking in the Spirit. Your whole mind is different. Your outlook, your desires, your whole conduct, everything is different. The apostle is constantly saying that. We'll find him saying it in detail next Friday and the following Friday is God willing. But you see, he is, the Apostle John puts the same thing very plainly and very clearly again in that first epistle in chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 22. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. You see, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. We keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Paul is going to tell us in Romans 8, 7 that they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but we can do things as Christians that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. You can have an intellectual man who says, I believe, but he doesn't love his brother, and he's not a Christian. He's in the flesh still. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him. He walks in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he has given us. The man who is no longer under condemnation, the man who is in Christ, the man who has been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, is a man who has got evidence in himself that he's a new man. And if you haven't got it, I don't give a farthing for your supposed belief. You can have an intellectual belief in these doctrines, but it's of no value to you. If you really believe, you've got evidence in yourself. And there is evidence also for other people. This is the answer to Sandemanianism. Or if you like to call it by its modern name, Believism. I don't care whether a man tells me or not. I have believed that Christ has died for me. If he doesn't produce evidence and hasn't got it in himself, that he is walking after the Spirit, I say, my friend, I don't believe what you're saying. You have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've said you believe. But there is a difference between saying that you believe it and believing it. That was that terrible error taught by Sandyman, wasn't it? And you've got a good deal of it at the present time. You see, the favorite verse of this sentiment teaching is this. It's in the 10th chapter of this epistle to the Romans, in verse 9. They say, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And this is how they put it. Are you prepared to say with your mouth, to make confession with your mouth, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for your sins? If you are, you are saved. Don't worry about your feelings, they said. Don't worry about your feelings. Don't worry about anything. If you are prepared to make this statement, you are saved. I suggest that that is the exact opposite of what the apostle is saying, not only in chapter 10, but also here in chapter 8. You notice the emphasis on the heart. Shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And if you believe it in your heart, your life will be affected. And you'll know that you are in the realm of the Spirit. That the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done this thing to you. Has set you free. You'll know that you're a new man. We must not rest content with any belief that does not provide any evidence at all, either within or without. That the law of the spirit of life is operating in us and that we are walking after the spirit and not after the flesh.
You cannot, how much you may want to do so, stop at forgiveness, stop at what is called salvation. You cannot be justified without the work of sanctification, starting at the same moment. The moment a man is regenerate, the process of sanctification has already started. The Spirit of Christ is in him, and he is a sanctifying spirit. Very well, then, I believe the Apostle added it for that third and last reason, that we might be driven to examine ourselves and not just say, oh, I believe in Christ, doesn't matter what I do, I can sin as much as I like, I believed in Christ, the blood of Christ is on me. No, no, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you're not walking after the Spirit, the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled in you. You are still in your sins. You are still under condemnation. Oh, the importance of this phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now then, we finish these great four verses. From here on, the matter is comparatively simple. He puts it in detail, divides it up. The statements are obvious. But we will be going on to consider Paul's own exposition of this phrase that has thus occupied the whole of our attention this night. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we again feel that our language and all our attempts at words are inadequate. But we would humbly thank thee for the great translation from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of thy dear Son, from the realm of the flesh in which we once were with Nicodemus and all the Pharisees and all the foulest sinners in the world into the realm of the Spirit and of life, we rejoice that we are in Christ Jesus and that thou hast given us thy Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, receive our praise. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us. Now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.